Hi there. Thanks for subscribing to Are We There Yet? This podcast is a production of WMFE. We're a public radio station in Central Florida. And we're currently in our silent drive, raising money to support shows just like this one. So if you value the conversations about space exploration you hear on this show, consider donating to WMFE. You can do that by visiting WMFE.org support. You can also support this podcast by rating and reviewing it wherever you download. That way, more people can explore exploration with us. Thanks. From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is Are We There Yet? The podcast exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA is going back to the moon, but before it does, it has to figure out how to work with the dirt on the lunar surface. Moon dust is nasty stuff. It's sharp, sticky, and can really mess up your equipment. But it also has valuable resources in it. So how do robots and humans work on the lunar surface and exploit its precious resources? That's up to the team at Swampworks to figure out. They're a group of scientists and engineers at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. We'll visit the lab at KSC to learn about the work they do, learning how to live and work on the lunar surface. Then, what is light? It's a simple question with a complex answer. We'll talk with our expert scientists about the science of light. But first, moon dust. Rob Mueller is a senior technologist trying to figure out how to live and work on the moon. His research is helping NASA develop new robots that could mine the surface for valuable resources. And he's working with companies like SpaceX to uncover how rocket exhaust interacts with lunar regolith to help land rockets on the moon. I took a trip to KSC to visit his lab, and Rob showed me around. This is a simulated lunar surface and if you were walking on the moon it has dusty soil just like you would have on the moon in fact if you put a footprint down it looks just like one of those apollo footprints so we have also done geotechnical testing and it shows that this regolith simulant which is what we call it is very realistic and so we have a big bin here it's 25 feet by 25 feet by about three feet deep and we use it basically for testing robots. These robots need hours on them. They need to be tested. They need to be in this abrasive, fine dust in realistic conditions, and we're trying to put hours on the machines to test them. What makes it so different than, let's say, putting this out in a dirt field uh, you've got here at Kennedy Space Center? Why? What sets this lunar regolith aside from what you'd see here on Earth? Yeah, it's, it's tempting to just go use a sand pit. And you say, okay, sand is more or less right, but it's not. Sand is too coarse. The, the grain size is really what matters. And if you think of sand, that's a big, rounded particle. Beach sand has been eroded by the waves, the wind, by the environment on here on Earth. But uh, lunar soil is crushed rock. And each particle is much smaller than beach sand. It's between 20 and 100 microns. And it's also very sharp and angular. It's literally a piece of rock that has been cleaved off of another piece of rock, so it's got a sharp, angular surface. And it's more dusty. It's more like talcum powder. Or think of icing sugar that you put on a cake. It's it's more of a very, very fine consistency. So when it's dry, it has electrostatic properties. It's very sharp and angular. And there's also a third thing that that comes into effect, which are the Van der Waals forces. Because these particles are so small, the inner atomic forces start taking effect. You combine all those three things, it's it's a very sticky dust. It sticks to everything. And and that's the difference. It's sharp, angular, sticky. It's so fine, it gets into all the joints, and it just grinds up those joints. And so we have a lot of problem with equipment. On, On the Apollo missions, when the 
astronauts took their suits off. They, they twist the gloves off. There's a joint where the glove joins the suit. And after three days, those joints were compromised. They were no longer working because the dust uh, was in the joint and it just uh, tore up the seal. And so dust is a big issue on the moon. Mm -hmm. How do you recreate that dust here on Earth? Uh, it's really a, a matter of having the, the fine particles. And uh, we do the same thing. If you think about the moon, it's uh, a lot of crushed rock. Over four and a half billion years, meteorites and comets and other objects have impacted the moon. Every time it impacts, these objects are coming in at 14 kilometers a second. So it's a large impact, and it sprays this uh, ejecta, is what we call it, everywhere. And so it's essentially crushed rock. And then over the many, many uh, millions and billions of years, this fine crushed rock builds up on the surface of the moon. So until now, we have between 10 and 20 meters of crushed rock on the surface of the moon. So how do you simulate crushed rock on the moon? You, you crush the rock on Earth. So we literally take rock. Pretty simple. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, crushed rock is crushed rock. <laughs> and uh, we've run equations on it, and uh, it's, it's the same particle size distribution. And uh, so essentially all you have to do is crush rock. But it has to be the right type of rock. And what we find on the dark areas of the moon, the mare, uh, that's basalt. So we go find basalt. Lava flows on Earth. It's, it's lava that's flowed out of the ground and cooled down. We find that. We drill holes in it. We put dynamite in. We blow it into chunks. We take the chunks. We put them into machines. We crush them into gravel. And then the byproduct of crushing into gravel is fine dust, fine crushed rock. We collect that fine dust. We bring it to Kennedy Space Center, put it in a bin, and that's how you simulate the surface of the moon. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of the projects you're working on here in, in, this, um, in this lab. The razor we see is in the bin there. Um, a scary-looking machine. It's got these, you know, these big tumblers, and it looks like uh, little sharp edges on, on it. What is it, and, and what is this thing designed for? Okay, it's not a battle bot. It looks like one. <laughs> <laughs> it, it could be a battle bot, but it's it not. Looks mean. It's, it looks it's, mean. It's not a battle bot. Uh, one of the reasons we call it a razor, it's an acronym. Uh, for Regolith Advanced Surface Systems Operations Robot. Of course, every good robot needs a good name. And the, the razor also implies that it um, has sharp edges on it. And so these sharp edges are the little scoops you see on it. So essentially, this is a bucket wheel, which is a wheel with scoops on it. And then we stack up the bucket wheels and turn it into a bucket drum so that we can gather the dirt. We gather the regolith, and it tumbles around inside the drum, and then we bring it over to a reactor, you spin the drum one way, it collects the regolith. You spin it the other way, it dumps the regolith. So this is a very good way of mining regolith on the moon. The reason we have to mine the regolith on the moon is because that's where the resources are. 42% of the regolith is oxygen. So if you need oxygen on the moon, you have to dig. If you have to dig, it's not going to be an astronaut with a shovel. It's going to be a robot. But it has to be a small robot that we can transport there, and that's why we invented this, this machine. And so how long has this razor been, you said they need hours in these, in these bins, how long has um, this particular one been operating? Well, if you think about it, you can't even drive your car more than 4,000 miles, 5,000 miles without uh, having an oil change. Well, we want to run these machines for five years on the moon with zero maintenance. So that's a tough task. And in order to meet that task, we have to design it uh, in the right way, but then we have to prove that it can last for five years. So, of course, doing five years of testing is not very efficient, so we try to do accelerated testing. We put it into extreme conditions that are 
more extreme than what we would even see on the moon, and we, we stress the machine, and, and then that way we can see that it's robust enough to handle uh, this lunar environment. Mm -hmm. And we were talking earlier about this smaller one, which is um, far less intimidating here, the, the mini Razor. Um, tell me about the development of this one. It looks like this is a lot of 3D printed parts and stuff that's just kind of thrown together in the lab here. How, how, did, you, how did you create this Yeah, thing? this was actually a, a good project. Uh, we, we built the Razor to be a small robot, but then we had a, a project with the University of Central Florida uh, where the uh, senior design team at the University of Central Florida in the engineering department, uh, they asked us if they could collaborate with us and, and do some work. And so, so we said, well, it would be great if we could uh, try to challenge ourselves and build a complete razor excavating robot fully 3D printed, except for the motors. The motors you have to buy. And uh, we managed to do that. We've designed a, a smaller version of the robot. It's about half scale. And uh, it's not a scary looking, it's actually kind of cute. Cute, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, that's, but that's intentional because uh, for STEM, for uh, science, uh, technology, engineering, mathematics education, uh, we want this to be engaging for the students. So imagine uh, that we hand this to uh, a high school and they 3D print every part and then they learn. They learn how to build a robot. And in fact, we had uh, Take Your Kids to Work Day here a few weeks ago. And there were five-year-old kids. We, if you'll notice, the controller is a, it's a PlayStation. It's control. a PlayStation controller, <laughs> which every kid has probably held before, right? We, we, it was a great experiment. We handed this to a five-year-old kid, and uh, the child didn't have to have any training, no instructions. Naturally, starts pushing the buttons and seeing what will happen. And it was very interesting observing these these five-year-olds because uh, they just tried tried it out what goes forward what goes backwards and and just through simple trial and error learning process within three or four minutes they knew how to drive it so this is exactly what we want we want an intuitive robot and and so we want this mini razor will be beneficial for high school students it will be the universities will then program it and make it autonomous and the the k through 12 kids they just get to play with it and have fun mm-hmm is there an age limit on uh, robotics drivers here at NASA? Do you think you'll be hiring a, a five-year-old? Well, well, I think uh, <laughs> robotics drivers will become obsolete. Okay. And yeah. I don't think we'll need drivers at all because uh, they'll be so smart, they'll drive themselves. But mm -hmm. that's, that's the future. Now, another initiative you're working on here at Swampworks is, is studying um, exhaust plumes and how those work with uh, lunar regolith as, as NASA and other agencies look towards Mm -hmm. um, heading back to the moon. Tell me a little bit about the work um, that you're doing uh, in, in that respect. When we landed on the moon in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, it, it was a tremendous program with tremendous success. But if you look back at it, it was very risky. In fact, five out of the six missions had trouble landing. And when you land on the moon, these uh, rocket plumes, the exhaust plumes, a long jet that comes out of the bottom of the rocket. And it impacts the surface, and it just blows dust everywhere. So think of a helicopter landing in a field, and it creates what they call a brownout condition, where the dust is just blown up, and the pilot can't see where he's landing. We had the same thing happening on Apollo. The astronauts reported that they had a hard time seeing the landing site because of a large cloud of dust that was blown up towards the lander. So their vision was obscured, and as a pilot, that's a, a very risky situation to be landing in a vision-obscured environment. And that, that's an issue. Uh, they also landed on the edge of a crater, 
they they could have tipped over. One of the uh, landers uh, landed. It was not straight. It was at 11 degrees inclination. And uh, after about 12 degrees, uh, you have a problem launching off of a, a platform that's not horizontally stable. Uh, so these are all issues that we really would like to avoid. On top of it, if your lander is tipped over at 12 degrees, 11, 12 degrees, you can't sleep well at night. And that's what they found in the first mission, Apollo 11. They, they couldn't sleep that well because everything was, was crooked. And, and it's just like having an RV. The first thing mm-hmm. you do is you jack it up and level it out. Uh, before you go sleep. So, in fact, uh, astronauts started using hammocks because the, these landers were not um, level. So these are all small issues, but when you add it up, it becomes a situation where if, if you do it once or twice, you might be able to take the risk. But if you want to have a routine spaceport, a very good landing site, launch and landing site, you need some kind of infrastructure to assure that you're going to have a safe and reliable landing every time. So we talk about plume effects mitigation. So what does that mean? That means the rocket plume's coming down, it's hitting the soil, it's blowing the soil everywhere, it's blowing a hole into the ground, a crater, and these particles are traveling out at 2,000 meters per second. And if you think about that, a, a speeding bullet is 500 meters per second. So there's sharp, crushed rock being ejected at 2,000 meters per second, which will sandblast everything around you. And it, it travels a long way. In fact, it even goes into orbit and comes down. So you have to be careful on what's on orbit so you don't sandblast what's on orbit. So there's a lot of issues associated with plume effects. Now we're looking at solutions for that. How do you mitigate those plume effects? One of the things we're looking at is is launch and landing pads. Uh, So on Earth here, when you see SpaceX landing their first stage, they don't land in a dirt field. They land on a landing pad. There's Mm -hmm. a reason for that. And so we're investigating uh, mitigations for that. A helicopter lands on a helicopter landing pad if they can. They would prefer to land on a secure, safe pad than land in a field. Also, this, this what I call spaceport infrastructure, it's, it's a spaceport on the moon and on Mars, uh, will have beacons and lights. So if you want to land at night, you might want to have some lights just like you have on airport runways here. You might want to have some beacons just like you have on airport runways here. Mm-hmm. And that makes the whole landing and launch uh, operation much, much safer. Maybe I'm getting a, ahead of you all here, but how do you get a, a landing pad on the moon? That's why we have SwampWorks. We're doing the research and technology development to make that possible. And today, it's not known. Nobody really knows how to do that. But we do have some concepts, some ideas we're studying. And uh, uh, within a few years, I think we'll have that problem solved. Mm-hmm. Now, the, with this um, exhaust plume, you're partnering with with private industry for this. How does this kind of uh, relationship work? Well, it's, it's really a matter of size. The small landers, they're okay. The rocket plume uh, forces are not as high as the bigger landers. But when you start scaling up to bigger landers, the forces get much, much higher. And it doesn't scale in a linear fashion. It scales exponentially with, with an exponent of about 2.5, so it's a little bit more than squared. So the bigger the, the lander gets, the worse the problem gets. So there, there's a certain point where you can't accept the risk anymore. With the smaller landers, you can accept the risk. But with the bigger landers, you cannot accept the risk. Well, SpaceX is talking about this giant spaceship, the, the Starship, and, and it's, it's huge. I mean, this, this thing is bigger than the space shuttle. Imagine landing the space shuttle vertically Mm -hmm. on its tail. 
that's that's what they're trying to do and so they recognize that this is an issue and because we have the expertise in uh, modeling these forces and in uh, developing solutions to mitigate the plume effects they came to see us and they said uh, we'd like to collaborate with you on on solving this uh, issue mm -hmm. now you've done some work with um kind of 3D printing as well. Would that play into, would you be able to 3D print a landing pad on the moon? It, it's possible, yes. In fact, we had a, a... That was my idea, right? That's the first person who's ever come to you? And <laughs> we, we had a competition uh, called the Centennial Challenge for 3D printing a habitat. And the first, uh, one of the first steps in that competition was to 3D print a foundation for a habitat, for a house on Mars. And so that foundation is essentially a flat slab which is what a landing launch pad is. And, and several of the competitors did show that they could 3D print a flat pad. So that is possible, but we need to develop the robotics and we need to develop the materials. And we don't want to launch concrete into space from Earth, so we have to develop local lunar concrete that uses indigenous materials. Mm -hmm. So we, we think it's possible to 3D print a launch landing pad, but there's still some technology development required. Mm -hmm. So since that wasn't my idea, I'm not getting one named after me on the moon or anything? Well, you know, we, we can talk about <laughs> it, and uh, if you have some good ideas, let's, let's talk. So, I mean, where do you see lunar exploration in the next five years, Rob? You're, you're kind of on, you know, the front lines of this playing with these crazy ideas and, and putting them into practice and, and proving that they can work. Where do you see us? It's, it's a really exciting time now. We're finally going forward to the moon, and it's, it's, uh, it's long overdue. It's the next logical step for humanity. We've uh, conquered low Earth orbit. We have satellites in geosynchronous orbit. It's time for humanity to move off this planet. And, and the moon is the next logical step. And we need to learn how to live in space and live off the land, use the local resources, because that way it's sustainable. You don't have to have these supply ships coming from Earth all the time. You can live in outer space and be self-sufficient, so Earth-independent. That's, that's really the goal. And the reason why that's important is because there are a lot of resources in space. It will make life better on Earth. If we use the resources in space... All kinds of things will happen that we can't even imagine yet. People always ask me, what, what's out there? There's nothing out there. There are a lot of resources out there. Every element in the periodic table is out there. There's abundant energy from this nuclear fusion reactor called the sun. There's a lot of energy, a lot of materials. The only thing that's missing is human ingenuity to go harness the energy and the materials. If we can do that, we will figure out ways to improve the human condition. Rob, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. That was Rob Mueller, senior technologist at NASA's Kennedy Space Center and co-founder of SwampWorks. It's now time for our segment called I'd Like to Know, where we take your questions and pose them to a panel of expert scientists. We're joined by University of Central Florida planetary scientists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. This question comes from our listener, Chris McClellan. Chris writes, this is how I understand it. A star puts out light. That light leaves the star in an endlessly expanding sphere out forever into the cosmos. If we could picture it, she imagines a bubble of light that gets larger and larger in all directions. So I took Chris's interpretation and put it to the panel. Is that the right way to imagine light? 
Josh Caldwell kicks off the conversation. Well, light does spread out from a source. So if you have a star, light is leaving that source. I don't know if I'd use the word bubble because that uh, implies more sort of like a flash of light so that there's light but then darkness. And with a star that's shining for billions of years like our sun, the light is continuing to emanate from the sun and travel out into the distant reaches of space until it runs into something. Uh, And uh, we've talked about the bending of space-time, and so the light will follow the paths of curved space-time. But if it encounters a planet or an interplanetary or interstellar dust particle, that might absorb it. Uh, So there's absorption of that light as it travels out into space, so that results in some reduction of the amount of light that's traveling Mm -hmm. out there. Uh, It might get scattered, change direction. Let's get a little existential here. What what is light? Let's start. Maybe I should have started there first. That's a really yeah. that's a good one, right? It's a it's an electromagnetic wave. <laughs> okay, and it's a photon. That, it's also a, a particle. That's yeah. a, that's an, an answer without really providing an answer. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, light famously can be described as both a wave and using sort of particle concepts. And the and the two different and the reason it's described those two different ways is because different people had different ideas for experiments of how light would interact with things and they tested them using things that would test to see if it has these wave properties and it did but then other folks did experiments to see if it would have a little like particle properties so sort of like a little I don't know Nerf gun you're shooting little light particles through things and it does so it behaves in both ways yeah mm-hmm. it's really it's the real trouble with this is it's all quantum physics right which is the, the tough stuff right so. Sometimes light behaves like a particle. Sometimes it behaves like a wave. In reality, it's neither one. It's some. It's its own thing. It's its own thing that de- it's a defies simple explanation and simple analogy. Um, but luckily, like we said, it's some, it can be easily described as a wave or a particle, and so you can think of it either way. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with, as Josh said, electromagnetic fields. properties, electromagnetic yeah. fields. So it's where you have electricity and magnetism interacting and producing energy. Mm-hmm. So the... Wave particle, uh, the wave nature of light, we associate with color. So light can come in different wavelengths, and those different wavelengths correspond to, in our everyday language, color. So Mm -hmm. blue light has a short wavelength. Red light has a longer wavelength. Radio waves have a very long wavelength. X-rays have a very short wavelength, and they can penetrate you. And the particle nature just has to do with how much energy is in the smallest packet of electromagnetic radiation of that particular wavelength. Mm -hmm. And light is so important to observing the universe, right? Until but, recently, it was the only way we could do it. Right. So it's very lucky, you know, as our, as our listener uh, mentioned, that it does emanate from a star and then go outward in this big spherical thing, because that's how we find out about a star, right? We can't. Stars are ridiculously far away, all the stars except our sun. We can't get there. So, you know, we're limited to sitting here in our solar system, and this is how we learn about the universe is by intercepting that light that came from these other stars. So this light, is does, does, it, does it dim over time? Is, you know, when, when light travels from a star, are, are those are we losing those photons? Like, kind of, am, well, I, am I asking that question in a, in a sense, right? I mean, the light definitely has to spread out, right? So, I mean, as, as if you did have a burst of light, say, coming from a star, it does spread out. Mm-hmm. as it goes outward. And so that kind of the intensity of the light will decrease as you get further and further from the source of the light. It's sort of like if you have paint and you put it over a small square, it covers a certain amount. And if you try to spread it over a whole wall, though, it gets spread out and it's the same amount of paint, but it's over a bigger surface now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the particle nature, I think, works well for that because you can imagine the star 
shooting out these photons, these particles of light in all directions. And if you're very close to it, you're going to get pelted by mm -hmm. those photons. And the farther you get away, the more spread out they are because they're all traveling away from the star and spreading mm -hmm. out. So the number of photons crossing any particular area each second gets smaller and smaller as you travel farther away. But each individual photon is just fine. Mm -hmm. It's It itself is not having its energy reduced or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Is there a, a measurement of the intensity of light? Is is there is that what you, you take into account? Absolutely. So our modern astronomical detectors, that is one of the things that we're measuring, is how much light are we getting at each different wavelength. Mm -hmm. And so those different colors tell us something about the composition of the thing that we're looking at, uh, how fast it's moving, and the intensity of it tells us how far away that thing is, and how bright it is intrinsically. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that we are at risk of not observing certain things in our universe because the light's not here? Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. I mean, so obviously we're limited. First of all, we're just limited. And, you know, if the light is, the intensity of the light is small enough, then you just, we can't detect it with our telescopes that we have. So there's lots of distant, dim things out in the universe that we just can't see. And then there are other weird issues that we have with things that are really far away where their signal, I mean, light has a finite speed, and so it can only have gone so far in the entire future or history what, of the universe. Yeah. What, one of the, my favorite mind-bending things about the expansion of the universe is the age of the universe is about 13.7 billion years, uh, and light travels uh, at the speed of light, which means that something that's more than 13.7 billion light years away from us, we will never see it. It's It's... That's takes dreadful. more than the age of <laughs> takes more than the age of the universe for that light to get here and there are things that are farther away than the size of the observable universe and as the universe expands you could have the amount of stuff in the universe that's outside of the observable universe get bigger or mm -hmm. the amount of stuff that's in the observable universe becomes a smaller and smaller fraction of what we know the universe to be. Mm -hmm. That's terrifying and sad at the same time. <laughs> it is very, yeah. it is very existentially frequent. upsetting. Yeah. It is existentially yeah. upsetting that theoretically one could imagine a point in time where the Milky Way galaxy is the only thing in the observable universe. And scientists at that time would draw all of their conclusions about the nature of the universe based on a single galaxy. I read that in the show notes before we were doing this, and that it kept me up the other day. <laughs> oh, no. about yeah. that. I was like, "That sounds that sounds awful. It's, it's terrible. It's a dark future. Yeah. Yes. Don't worry, that's a long way so, off. Okay, so, <laughs> so that's a long way off, but it raises the question about what else, what is out there yeah, beyond our know. horizon yeah. right. that we do not know about. And there's also a lot um, that we didn't know about for a long time because we didn't have the technology to look at different wavelengths, right? Mm -hmm. So we mentioned that there are different wavelengths. You have to actually be looking in those different wavelengths with different types of detectors and things like that to see them. So there's a lot of things we didn't know really were happening before we looked at those wavelengths. Mm -hmm. So obviously we're, the, there's the one constraint of the speed of light. So there are certain things at the end, of, uh, the edge of the universe we're just not going to see. What about as, as new technology develops, will we be able to see more stuff because we're able to see things with less intensity or, or less photons? For well, sure. sure. Yeah. yeah. The bigger the telescope you make, the better the telescope you make, the the more you're going to be able to see these things that are really, really dim. And the, the James Webb Space Telescope is a great example of that. It's it's going to be a space-based infrared telescope that's going to let us see in the infrared part of the spectrum further than we've ever seen before or dimmer objects than we've ever seen before. And that's going to be awesome. And there's some new ground-based telescopes like the 30-meter telescope and a few right. others that are being built and some in radio wavelengths that are being built on Earth that are going to have a huge collecting area. So they'll be able to collect a lot more photons and see dimmer things in that way. 
And famously, this year we saw the first image of the shadow of a black hole with mm-hmm. the Event Horizon Telescope, which is really a clever, very clever assemblage of multiple radio telescopes on the Earth using the wave nature of light instead of the particle nature and looking how those waves interfere with each other, coming to those different telescopes across the planet to see something that uh, Einstein thought would never be possible to observe, namely the actual shadow of the event horizon of a black hole. So as technology progresses, we will just see crazier and crazier things in the universe. So Absolutely. Until we don't see them anymore. Until we don't see them anymore. <laughs> so your, your weekly dose of existential dread with the Walk About the Galaxy host. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> We've been chatting with Addie Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney. They host the Walk About the Galaxy podcast. Thank you all. Thanks. Happy to be here. Yep. That was Addie Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney, planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida. They also host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Check it out wherever you download your podcasts or on their website, walkaboutthegalaxy.com. And if you have a question for I'd Like to Know, send it in. Shoot me an email. It's areweTheryet at wmfe.org. You can also send me a tweet, AWTYMars, or find us on Facebook. Search for Are We There Yet Podcast. That's going to do it for this episode. Be sure to follow us on social media for the latest space news. This podcast is a production of WMFE, and support for it comes from you, our listeners. Show your support with a donation. Visit WMFE.org slash support. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. For more space news, visit us online at WMFE.org slash space. I'll see you next week. I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.